Well, again, good morning. Good morning and welcome. My name is George Davis. Uh, thank you, Amy. And I just want to say thanks for helping us with uh, these connection cards. And I would encourage you to get your picture taken to be a part of our online directory. You know, as we're, as we're seeking to move forward and kind of rebuild connections after some of the isolation we have gone through, it's just great to have people's picture, uh, pictures in our online directory. So thank you for helping us with that. If you've got a Bible with you, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to the book of Luke in the New Testament, the book of Luke chapter 4. If you're new this morning, we're in this journey. We call it Love This Book. We're going through the Bible over multiple years, and then we're in the current segment of this Live This Book journey, uh, Love This Book journey. We're going through the life of Jesus. We started that at the beginning of the year. And as we continue looking at the ministry of Jesus, this morning we're going to come and really encounter the reality of Jesus as one who can do miracles, Jesus who is one who can cast out demons. And I realize, I realize for some of us, uh, a scene, scenes like we're going to see today raise all sorts of questions. They tap into some of the questions that we have. I mean, can we really trust the Gospels? I mean, when we read these accounts of miracles, it can seem weird or odd or just, you know, we, we're, we're people in a modern society. How are we to think about that? And, and I realize that even as we go through this series, at times we've got different questions about the reliability of what we are reading. So with that in mind, I just want to remind you again of a resource that I've mentioned because I do help. This is a helpful little volume called Can We Trust the Gospels by Peter William. It's a short book, very accessible book. Um, in fact, interestingly, it's now, I think, available in seven languages uh, since it's been published. And, and just to help give you kind of a taste of some of the, the things that Peter mentions, I recorded a Zoom call with him uh, several days ago. It's about a 15-minute conversation, just going over some of, the, some of the ideas that he introduces in the book. And I just want you to know we're going to make that Zoom call, that recording available this week. We'll post it on social media. It'll be in our e-bulletin. And I just encourage you to kind of check out that just to get a taste of, of some of the reasons why we can make the case that the Gospels are reliable. And then if you'd like to go further, I would encourage you to pick up this book, uh, Can We Trust the Gospels? So we'll be making that available this week. Now, as I said, we're, we're continuing this journey through the life of Jesus. Last week, we saw this pivot point where Jesus moves his ministry from Nazareth to Capernaum. And when we come to Luke chapter 4, I like to think of it as <laughs> it's, it's a day in the life of Jesus. And what an amazing day it had to be. Because it's a day that reveals Jesus' ability to heal, to cast out demons. It's a day where he is surrounded by people. And they are not simply mesmerized and amazed by what he does. They're also amazed and mesmerized by what he says. It is a day where all of the winds of public support are behind him. And it's a day where it seems as if he can do no wrong. But of course, as we know, later in his life, those winds of popularity will turn against him. But if we, if we cut through kind of the temporary popularity that we see in Jesus' life at this moment, I think there are certain things that the gospel writers want us to see. Certain things that we need to understand if we are to take him seriously. And if we are truly to hear his invitation, follow me. So with that in mind, let's jump into Luke chapter 4. We'll be beginning in verse 31. 
Again, remember Jesus, we're seeing that we've seen this transition of Jesus' ministry from Nazareth, Nazareth to Capernaum. And, and so this part of the uh, chapter begins this way. Then he went down to Capernaum. And, and by the way, talking about the reliability of the Gospels, here's, a, here's a, just a very simple clue that we can trust the Gospels. And that's the fact that when you went from Nazareth to Capernaum in Galilee, you, you basically lost 1,800 feet of elevation. So you really did go down to Capernaum. So this, this is just an, one simple piece of evidence that the author is very much familiar with the geography, topography of the region in this depiction of the stories of Jesus. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. And notice this, they were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. Now, why were they amazed at his teaching? Well, I think you need to understand this, that in in the world of which Jesus was a part, the standard way that scribes would teach was often that, you know, the professional scribes would, we we, we could refer to a passage in in the Hebrew Bible, we could refer to a theme, and then then as as we explained it, we would kind of give you a history of what other people have thought. Here's what other teachers have thought about this passage, and rabbi, you know, this rabbi said X, this rabbi said Y, and, and in essence, it, it, the lesson would in so many ways be a history lesson about what other people had thought about this passage. But Jesus didn't, didn't teach that way. But Jesus comes in and his teaching is totally different. He comes into Capernaum and he's bringing this radical message about the kingdom of God, the new work of God now being present through him and he and, and over time, he, he begins to explain what life in this new kingdom looks like. And he's not giving us a history lesson about what other people had thought. In fact, this is the, the individual who could boldly proclaim, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And somehow in his teaching, he was connecting with people and where they were at, he was talking about this kingdom of God and the way it transitions into your life and what it means to be a part. And they, they just never heard anything like this. From this man who's now come into their community. But not only were they amazed at his teaching, they were also amazed at what he was able to do. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, go away. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And it's really interesting in so many ways in in the Gospels, it's the demons that get who Jesus is first. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly, come out of him. And then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. Now notice here just this, the authority of Jesus' words, right? He speaks and people are amazed by his teaching because he's speaking in a way that connects to them and in a way that they're not accustomed to hearing. And furthermore, he can speak and exercise control over the demonic realm. Now to help, help, help us just kind of conceptualize this scene, this day in the life of Corinth, let me show you this picture. So this is, this is a scene from ancient Corinth that you can visit today and that and the white colored the white stone building in the background is actually a synagogue in Capernaum it's not the synagogue that Jesus would have entered it's not that old but the synagogue Jesus would have entered was on that location in fact you can actually see some of the remains of that when you visit 
So that's the background in the foreground. You see the kind of the basalt rock and this area would have been part of a neighborhood in ancient ancient Capernaum and not too far from where this picture is taken would have been the house that many believe was actually the house of Simon Peter. It's, it's literally less than a minute walk from the location of the synagogue to what is believed to be Peter's house. So all that is taking place on this day is taking place in a very small area. Right? Jesus of Nazareth has come into Capernaum and he's teaching in amazing ways. He's doing amazing things and he's, he's invaded this ordinary everyday neighborhood. What an amazing, what an amazing day it is. And then the day continues and we read this. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Again, this, this is just a short walk most likely. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, You are the Son of God, but he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Messiah. So on this amazing day, people saw the reality of the uniqueness of Jesus. They heard this authority in his teaching, teaching they'd never heard before. They saw him control and exercise control over the demonic. They saw him bring healing. And and obviously what happened was, first there was Peter's mother-in-law who was healed. And then, then word began to spread. So in this tiny neighborhood, right, there was this influx of people and this amazing experience of, of healing and transformation. What a day this was. Now, what exactly are we to learn from this day? Why why is Luke telling us this? Why are the gospel writers telling us this? What does he want us to see? Well, there are many things, many ways we could answer that question, but let me me just highlight a couple of things for you. First of all, I think these these scenes reveal Jesus' power and his passion. First of all, they reveal his power. Again, remember, people, they were hearing him, and it's like, I've never heard anybody teach like this before. I've always heard scribes teach, but it was like, oh, boring, you know, boring. But, but he teaches in a way that I'm drawn in. He teaches in a way that connects to my real life. He teaches in a way where I'm being invited into this new reality. I'm not sure what to think, but I'm being drawn in. And not only were they amazed at the power of his words, they're... they're Amazed at the power of what he's able to do. But if you had been in that crowded neighborhood on that day in Capernaum, not only would you have been witness to Jesus' power, you, you also would have been witness to his passion. His passion for people. And I think one of the clues to that is found in a simple phrase that we just read, which you, you may easily overlook, and that is this, right? As the word spread, people come, and Jesus is healing. And what does Luke say? Luke says he laid his hands, he laid his hands on every one of them. 
Now, that may not seem like a big deal to us, right? I mean, if you go to the doctor, right? If you go to the doctor for a physical, at some point, he or she's probably going to put the stethoscope on. They're going to listen to you. You know, they're going to put the stethoscope on your chest, and then they're going to put it on your back, take a deep breath, cough. You know the routine. I mean, the doctor, he or she's going to be in your space, and we're accustomed to that. But, but here's what's so amazing about what Jesus was doing. Now think about this. Jesus could heal with a simple word. Right? And we've, we've actually already seen him do that in this text, right? He exercises the demon with a word. He speaks and things happen. He is God. God has no empty words. When God speaks, things happen. He could have healed all of these people with a single word. And at times, that's the way he does heal. But in this case, every person, he's laying his hands on them. Now, here's why that's significant. Remember this. In the first century world of which Jesus was a part, sickness and disease often involved ritual impurity. When you were sick, it simply didn't affect your body. It affected your social standing. It affected your relationships. Illness produced isolation. Yeah, here's Jesus. And one by one, he's laying his hands on them. And one by one, he is not simply restoring them physically. He is restoring them relationally. He's not simply restoring them physically. He is restoring them to community. He's giving them their humanity back. It's an act of compassion. It's not simply a moment of power. It's a moment of love. And so I think the gospel writers, in, in telling us these scenes, they want us to see, see Jesus' power, but they, they also want us to see his passion. Because, you see, Jesus is inviting us to follow. This journey that we are following as we go through this series is also a journey we are being invited to enter. It's an invitation to us. But for us to take that invitation seriously, we have to understand who he is. We have to understand his power. And we have to understand his passion. Because you see, he's calling us to a different way of life. He's calling us to a life where we acknowledge our sin and brokenness. Where we release our assumptions that we can control life on our own. He's calling us to a life where we release our sense of self-sufficiency. And receive his grace and forgiveness. But to do that, we we have to understand who he is. His deity, his authority, his holiness and justice, his power. And we also need to understand his compassion, his love, his grace. So these scenes are meant to show us the power of Christ, the passion of Christ. But I think there's one other thing that we must pay attention to. And that is this. These scenes not only show us his power and passion, they also show us his mission. 
And here's why I say that, and, and pay attention to this clearly. One of the amazing ways about the way the gospel writers frame these scenes is this. The gospel writers place these scenes within a particular storyline. Now let me explain. We could stop and simply say, you know what? These miracles reveal who Jesus is. They show us his deity. They show us his authority. They show us his power. They show us his compassion for people. And all of that's true. But that's not the whole story. Because the gospel writers show us more than simply Jesus' power, they also show us that God, through Jesus, is fulfilling his promises. Let me just show you. So when Matthew records these scenes from Capernaum, He also adds this explanation, right? As he's talking about all that happened on that day, he says this. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took our infirmities and bore our diseases. Now, of course, Isaiah is a very famous Old Testament prophet who was critical of his own nation in a variety of ways. He understood their sin. He realized that the nation would go into exile because of their disobedience. But particularly in the second half of his book, he anticipates a day when God is going to do something new. Literally a new creation. When God is going to send a a redeemer, a a deliverer, an anointed one who will bring about restoration and renewal. One day God's kingdom will be restored. And Isaiah talks about this vision of God's promises and this vision of fulfillment in a variety of places. And what the gospel writers want us to see is, look, the the fulfillment of these promises is now taking place. It's not just that Jesus has power to do one-off miracles. No, it's, it's the fact that Jesus is fulfilling God's promises. This plan of restoration is now underway. Even as we see that in in Matthew, we also see it in in Luke. For instance, before you get to this day in Capernaum, we see Jesus in Nazareth. And as he goes into the synagogue in Nazareth and he reads from the Hebrew text, what passage does he read? It's, It's Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom from the, for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Luke is saying, look, the miracles I'm about to show you in Capernaum are part of this bigger agenda of God fulfilling his promises, just like Isaiah said. And then you get to the end of this day, and here's how Luke records it in Luke 4, 41 and following. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, right? I mean, after all, he's done these amazing things. We, we need to see more of this. We want more of this. They were looking for him. And, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because this is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? Jesus is acknowledging, look, I haven't come just to do these miracles to impress you on one day in this little community of Capernaum. 
I'm bringing about God's plan of restoration and renewal. All of this is part of this bigger plan, the kingdom of God. That's what the gospel writers want us to see. So Jesus, Jesus doesn't simply come as Savior to forgive us of our sins. He, he comes as healer and restorer to give us our humanity back. And the gospel writers want us to see that. If this is what the gospel writers want us to see, let, let's talk about what we should let's talk about what we should take away from these scenes. What do these scenes give us? And again, there are lots of ways to answer that question, but let me just highlight two. What, what, what are we to take away from these scenes? I think foundationally, what we are take, to take away is, is a certain perspective, a perspective on life. And the perspective these scenes give us is this. God's plan of restoration is underway. That's the perspective that we're to walk away from, from this one day in Capernaum. God's God's plan of restoration, rooted in these rich promises in the Old Testament. God's plan of restoration is underway. Now, I realize that in saying that, these scenes also raise all sorts of questions. For instance, the, the reference, right, to healings, to miracles, to exorcisms. These raise all sorts of questions for us. And, and again, for some of us, maybe, maybe the question is, I'm just, this just sounds too weird. It sounds, you know, we're modern people. This is outside the realm of normal human experience. And maybe you'd say, I'm not sure what I think about that. You're just naturally skeptical about these things. And I understand that. And again, I I would refer you to this interview that we're posting because one of the things Peter and I talk about is just the whole issue of miracles. But in the meantime, let me just challenge you to be open to this. If there is a creator God who creates and sustains this world we are part of, isn't it possible that he can continue to work in his creation in ways that will sometimes surprise us? Now, I realize maybe that's your question, but I think for some of us, the the question when we read these texts and kind of wrestle with what's going on here is this. For some of us, the question isn't, you know, do miracles happen? But maybe the question is, well, why don't they happen more? For some of us, this question of miracles and healing gets deeply personal. And it becomes this question. Why didn't it happen in this situation? If you've wrestled with that question, let me, can I just share with you part of my own journey in wrestling with questions like this? I think it was 15 or 16 years ago, uh, I was serving a church in Fargo, North Dakota. And we had a friend, a woman in our church, who started having some uh, medical issues, medical problems. And, and of course, you know, you know the routine. You start having problems. That leads to doctor's visits. That leads to loss of testing. And she went through that. And then she had a conversation that none of us wants to have with our doctor. 
because she had one of those conversations where she was given a very severe, life-threatening diagnosis. And when this happened, our our church family, our church community really responded. First of all, our church uh, family really, I think, responded in some very tangible, concrete ways. How can we assist the family? How can we come alongside? But we also responded in prayer. We prayed individually. We prayed as a church community. And as our treatment plan was being developed over time and and other doctors were uh, getting involved, there was also additional testing. And at some point in the testing, she was given this amazing news. There's no longer a problem. You can go home. No treatment is necessary. I realize people can have different explanations of what she experienced. But I would argue the most plausible is the simplest. God healed her. Yet in the same season, in the life of our church in Fargo, another person got a similar diagnosis. And once again, our church responded. And once again, people just responded in tangible ways. We had this crazy garage sale. We wanted to raise money to help offset some of the unexpected medical costs that they had, and so Rose and I hosted this garage sale, and it's a misnomer to call it a garage sale because people just kept showing up with stuff. So it wasn't just stuff coming in the garage. It was stuff in the front yard and the backyard, and in a day's time, we raised over $10,000 at this garage sale. But once again, our church didn't simply respond to the tangible needs of this individual. We prayed. We prayed individually. We prayed corporately. However, this time the disease progressed and he ultimately died. Now, how was was I to process those two situations? It was the same church community. It was the same people praying. And, and, And I can bear witness that both of these individuals were, to the best of my knowledge, committed followers of Christ. Yet there were different outcomes. And I found myself having to come to grips with two themes. First of all, I had to come to grips with the reality of God's power. Because I had seen it. God really is at work. His plan of restoration is underway. He is fulfilling his promises. I had to come to grips with God's power, but I also had to come to grips with God's providence. I had to come to grips with the truth that I won't always understand how he chooses to fulfill his promises. He is restoring people. His kingdom is at work. However, his kingdom is not yet here in its final form. So even as God is fulfilling his promises, I won't always understand his timing. So at a foundational level, these stories, this one day in Capernaum confronts me with the perspective that God's plan is at work. At times I won't fully understand it, but it is at work. And ultimately, this leads me to a question. A question I need to ask myself and a a question that really I want to leave you with this morning. And the question is simply this. God's plan of restoration is at work. Am I a part of it? 
God's plan of restoration is at work. Am I a part of it? Now, I realize you may simply say, well, you know what? The gospel writers want us to recognize that Jesus came to save us. So they are wanting us to put our faith and trust in Christ, to receive his forgiveness. That's true. Because make sure you understand, make sure you understand Jesus' work in its fullness, however. Because his work of salvation is ultimately a work of restoration. Consequently, his invitation is more than simply repent and believe so that you will spend eternity with me. His invitation is this, follow me. My kingdom, my work of restoration is already underway. Join me on this journey. So again, I find myself asking asking this question. God's plan of restoration is at work. Am I a part of it? For instance, am I open to his work in my life? Even as we started this year in prayer and fasting, part of the purpose was to make space for God to be at work. Am I, am I doing that? Do I, have, do I have relationships that encourage me to do that? Am I open to his work in my life? But not only am I open to it, am I desiring that for others? So simply put, I think a direct application among others of this passage is that that we pray for healing of others when they face sickness or illness. But as as I was wrestling with this text this week, it, it also kind of moved me in this direction. Am am I an agent of his restoration, right? Am am I open to his restoration in in my life, but am am I also an agent of that restoration in the life of others? This week, I emailed a colleague who uh, has done some helpful research and writing on the issue of Jesus and the Gospels, and I said, look, I'm I'm going to be speaking on this issue of healing. How do you think about this? How do you, how do you work with your students on this topic? And, and he, among other things, underscored the importance that, yeah, God's at work, and we need to understand that. We need to pray for healing. But for me, he also expanded the conversation because he was the one that reminded me that, that through his healing, Jesus was restoring community. Jesus was healing that which had been broken. So I found myself asking this question in new and different ways, right? God's plan is at work. Am I a part of it? God's plan is at at work. Am am I a part of it in my family? God's plan is at work. Am I a part of it in my relationships, in my workplace, in my community? Do, Do I reflect God's plan of restoration in how I engage the responsibilities of my life? Recently, I, there was some tension in, in a relationship that's very important to me. And in reflecting on that, I had, to, I had to recognize and own how I contributed to the tension in saying things in anger. And so this week, I made a call, and part of our conversation was this. I needed to apologize. Why? Because God's plan of restoration is at work. And I want to be a part of it. Now, I realize in those hard situations, we can't control how people respond. 
But this needs to be the perspective that influences how we engage our responsibilities. And the gospel writers want us, I think, to see this. They want us to develop this simple perspective. God's plan is at work. God's plan is at work. So are you participating in it? Now, I realize at times this can be hard. I realize at times it feels counterintuitive to take Jesus seriously. So I think there's one other thing that these scenes highlight for us. I think not only do these scenes give us a sense of perspective, I think they also give us a sense of hope. Along those lines, I love this quote by Tim Keller from his book, Reason for God. He writes, Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to to our minds, but a promise to our hearts. That the world we all want is coming. And I think the gospel writers would echo that sentiment. Because as they show us these scenes, it's more than just, look at these amazing things Jesus did on one day in Capernaum, in this little neighborhood. They're saying more than that. They are saying, look at the reality that God's plan of restoration is underway. And let that give you hope. Let it fuel your obedience. Let it foster endurance. So I ask you again, God's plan of restoration is at work. Are you a part of it? Let's pray together. Gracious God, when we come to the scene in Capernaum, we see this amazing collection of scenes that show us the power and passion of Jesus. But Father, I, I do pray that we would, we would understand that these were more than simply one-off acts of miraculous power. But these were signs that you were fulfilling your promises, that your plan of restoration is now underway. And Father, I pray that that, that truth could shape our perspective in how we engage our responsibilities. Father, as we gather today, some of us are kind of working through some hard decisions or maybe we're processing some unique opportunities or maybe there have been changes in our life and we're now figuring out what that looks like. We're making some decisions about the future for us vocationally or future for certain decisions that we have to make. Others of us are, are dealing with some strain in relationships, maybe even our family, there's estrangement and Father, in the midst of of those things we're working through, in the midst of those things that maybe are at the forefront of our mind, would we wrestle with the truth that your plan of restoration is already underway? So what does it look like for me to participate in that as I deal with this decision, as I deal with this opportunity, as I seek to work through this complication or... Engage this relational challenge. What does it look like for me to be a participant in your plan of restoration? Father, I pray that we would wrestle with that truth and that perspective. 
and that we could do so with the hope and encouragement that you are truly fulfilling your promises. And I pray this in the name of the one who makes that possible. (laughs) The name of the one who did those amazing things in Capernaum on that day, Jesus Christ. Amen. Again, I want to thank you for joining us this morning as we continue this journey through the life of Christ and and remind you also that as you leave, we're going to have members of our prayer team here at the front. I'm going to ask them to come down now and maybe there is a place where you're kind of wrestling with, okay, now, what what does it look like for me to engage this situation in light of this perspective, in light of the fact that Jesus' plan of restoration is now underway? If we could pray with you about that, we'd, we'd love the opportunity to do that. So just know we are going to be available here at the front. So now as you go, be reminded of this perspective again, this truth again, that God's plan of restoration is even now underway. So this week, let's participate in it. Amen.